HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Jody Eddy. Such Hi. a simple name. <laughs> so many D's and Y's, as I said before, <laughs> ups and downs in the signature. Um, I am very jealous of your wanderlust. <laughs> it's a little exhausting, yeah, but yeah. it's, it's, it's always worth it. Well, we'll get to where you've traversed this <laughs> earth uh, shortly, but you grew up in the wilds. The wild rice patties of Minnesota. Let's talk about the Midwest, which I think gets glossed over in the U.S. culinary scene a lot. Uh, What did you eat? What did you cook? What was Minnesota like? You know, it was funny as I I grew up, of course, I didn't appreciate um, the experiences that I was, the food experiences I was having. And only recently have I started really appreciating the fact that I had grandparents that were farmers. I, they pickled. They, I went fishing with my grandfather. I went hunting with him. I made charcuterie with my grandmother. Um, and now, of course, I tell my grandmother, you know, you're the hippest, hippest <laughs> woman that there is. This is what all the chefs are doing now. And um, I grew up with that. And I really appreciate it now. I never had a chance to tell my grandfather that. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah. A, it's amazing. Yeah, it was kind of this assumed thing then. And now it's an applied thing that exactly. you know, gets such accreditation. Um, I mean, the, the cuisine, was it mudded? Was it, you know, Eastern European? What, what's your background? My grandparents are German. So um, grew up walking into grandmother's house, sauerkraut. And of course, at the time, I didn't appreciate it. I didn't appreciate that either. And <laughs> now I'm like, Grandma, make me some sauerkraut. She's like, no, you didn't like it for 20 years. That's it. You're cut off. Oh, you get kibosh now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, very, very simple um, German, German food mainly. I have some Scandinavian influences, but um, we're pretty much straight up German. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, 
doing all these things, foraging, charcuterie making with your grandparents. Um, what led you to food as a profession? Did you go to school for it? I mean, uh, what formed this palate? Yeah, I, um, I always wanted to explore it, and I was in a different career, and as, as it often goes with, with cooks yeah. and people in the food industry, I changed careers, and I went to the Institute of Culinary Education in Manhattan, and um, after that, I cooked for a few years in kitchens, um, I, I was at John George and Fat Duck and Tabla and um, found my way into writing. Yeah, yeah. You say those things like they're just like on your resume, but those are pretty lauded kitchens to be in. Um, what kind of skills did you pick up from each? I mean, they're so specific. John George mm. being the, you know, omnipresent JG. Tabla having the Indian influence. Fat Duck having the laboratory. Mm. I think... Um, the starkest contrast for me was when I went from the fat duck, where I was staging for free, seventeen hours a day, six <laughs> there days. There were seventeen hours in the day. <laughs> yeah, where I learned Workable to appreciate hours. family meals. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, but going from there, where the work was very meticulous, and I would spend sometimes three hours deconstructing grapefruit, um, to tabla, this very high volume kitchen um it was it was quite a shock <laughs> yeah um to go from one to the other but i was really glad actually that i have both of those experiences just learn to appreciate both kinds of cooking yeah i mean well floyd cardo's at tabla too the way he introduces indian spices and finesses those things into i guess a new york vernacular yeah. is is kind of fascinating um and i think this is really contrasting to what you do now where it's find a cuisine uh, be almost like hyper regional about it uh, rather than using all that fusion. Um, so you were in all these kitchens and then eventually that led to writing, um, which led to a career at Art Culinaire. How did you make that transition? Um, I, I have an English degree from the University of Minnesota and I had always kept a food blog um, all through culinary school, even before culinary school. What an apropos name for the food. It's Edibles, Edibles. Right? Yeah, it was yeah. Edibles, and now it's just JodyEddy.com. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if everyone got Edibles yeah. and thought it was too cute. Yeah. Um, but I always kept it, and you know, sometimes after school or while I was at the Fat Duck, I was so tired, but I would come home and write about the history of olives or dates, and I often ask myself, why am I doing this? <laughs> What it, what's the payoff going to be? But I, I love writing, and um, I really tried to keep it to um, food history, culinary history, and uh, so I think it was a it was a nice transition into art culinary. So I've always had an appreciation for both yeah. fields. I mean, what do you think is the difference between food writing and food history writing? Hmm. Oof. That's a that's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> because I I think um, now you know the more chefs that I talk to, who I think I'm just doing a a straight up. Uh, food story with them, it almost always leads back to culinary history. I'm actually working on a project with a friend right now about culinary history. And, um, you know, you just find that anything that's topical these days, you know, of course, is rooted in history. Yeah. And I love that. I love that connection that we have to the past and that homage that chefs are perpetually paying to the past. Well, I mean, you've profiled everybody. Uh, Ferran Adria, Nathan Mervold, uh, Thomas Keller, Alain Ducasse. Um, I mean, talking to them, what are your first set of questions? Hmm. I guess I actually like to delve into their history and, and what, what shaped um, who they are today. 
And, um, you know, there are always those intriguing stories about their past, um, you know, that often started from the time of childhood. And it's just, um, I don't know, that's, that's where I like to start. Yeah, I mean, so talking to all these people, what have been some of the more intriguing, you know, mm-hmm. paths that people have taken that we wouldn't know because we hear of them as a chef in a certain place? Mm-hmm. Well, I think Nathan Mirvold, you brought him up. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's just endlessly fascinating (laughs) with his um his history and i think he reflects a lot of um who we are in the in the food industry you know he has just such a vast array of of interests and um he was really inspiring to me to hear all of those um so he was ceo at microsoft or he worked at microsoft he was a cfo cfo yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah um it's just great to hear because, I mean, coming from where you came from and, you know, hearing a profile like that, that there is no straight and narrow. Yeah. Uh, definitely no straight and narrow mm-hmm. to get to wherever you are in the industry and still be a vital part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you must talk to a lot of people and they ask you, how do you do what you do or how did you get to this point? Is there advice? Is there any path? Um, I, I do think that um, working in kitchens and um, going to culinary school really helped inform everything I do today um, and just gives you an appreciation for how hard these chefs are working in their kitchens every day. Um, I don't think, you know, I have some people who've asked me, you know, I, I really want to be a food writer. What do I do? And I always tell them, you know, at least go stage in a kitchen somewhere, go stage Go learn if you can't do culinary school. You know, just get into a kitchen. And um, but they say, no, no, no. I really love I, I love food and I love writing. I love to eat. But I think um, you know, there's a big difference between loving uh, a restaurant and loving to eat out, yeah. and actually being in the trenches. And I think it's invaluable. Yeah. So at Art Culinaire, um, what was your title? Uh, executive editor. Executive. So having to deal and coordinate with chefs, what kind of caveats would you set up for? How would you work with them more seamlessly than someone who didn't work in a kitchen? Um, I think, you know, once once I found out that I, I had cooked, um, I don't know, I think it kind of maybe put them at ease a bit um, because they understood that I really, I really understood where they were coming from yeah. and all that effort that went into that dish. And... Um, I don't know. I think it was a, a nice bridge yeah. between us. And you know how to get out of the way when it gets busy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, absolutely. That's something, um, you know, for the book I just finished, for Art Culinaire, I often was saying, you know, I'm just a fly on the wall. I'm, I'm out of the way. I'm just observing. Yeah. Um, because I definitely understand that as well. And bringing in those terms, behind, backs, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. when you're behind a chef, even as a writer. <laughs> even, yeah, even when I go into restaurants, I still say back when I'm passing a waiter. And, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, sometimes look at order slips and see if they're expediting correctly. So <laughs> exactly. it's, just, it's just in you. Yeah. Um, so what was it about Art Culinaire that led you to staff meals? You obviously were with all these chefs around the world in their kitchens. And there is that wonderful time when the staff comes together and eats together. Yeah. Um, my, my epiphany actually happened as a cook um, when I was at the Fat Duck. Yeah. Because those days were so long. And I, we started really early in the morning, crack of dawn. And I remember going out. They had two incredible staff meals every day. And um, walking out into the back, they eat outside on picnic tables. And I was, I was tired. I was nervous. It was my first day. I was overwhelmed. And when I went outside, um, just to see everyone sitting there, I actually didn't, um, 
know what the tradition was at that point. They said, what is this? Is this a special event today? Is this a holiday? <laughs> and they said, no, this is a staff meal. We do this twice a day. And it was a revelation. It was something you know, that really got me through my day. And then the more that I talked to chefs, um, you know, just throughout working at Art Culinaire and um, just with my friends, we often talked about staff meals. And it was just um, something I really grew to appreciate. Yeah. And I know um, there's a, seems like there's a contrast perhaps between Art Culinaire and staff meals. Um, but I think, you know, both parts, um, they're both a part of who a chef is. And so I think it was kind of an organic thing to write about yeah. staff meals. Who cooked the staff meals at Fat Duck? Um, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, which was, you know, certainly reflective of why I love staff meals so much, why my co-writer, Christine Carroll, loves staff meals so much. We, um, you know, we learned so much from, at Fat Duck, chefs around the world were cooking, and they were often bringing in their grandmother's favorite recipes from Argentina or the amazing recipe of their uncle from China. Or it was it was really incredible, and I love the tradition as well because you do have that exchange um, between cultures and culinary traditions, and then it ties you know everyone together at the table. Yeah. So I mean, it's not just like a, a sous chef trying to, you know put a new dish on the menu well there's certainly that element as well um you know there's that experimentation that happens and i don't know what that percentage is but sometimes um you have success sometimes you don't but i think um that's what's wonderful about staff meal too is chefs cooks they're sitting with their peers and they're harsh critics and (laughs) (laughs) um but we did talk to a lot of a lot of cooks um who talked about that? How that um, evolution happened of a dish, and often it would happen at the staff meal table. It was just perfecting it over, be it weeks, months, a couple of years, and get, before it went onto the menu. Yeah. So assembling this project, you traveled to what twenty five different kitchens yes. around the world. Yeah. How did you start assembling a list? <laughs> that was, you know, we um, we really reached out to Christine. Has also had been a cook. Um, so we had a really great group of um, friends who we could reach out to who were cooking in kitchens all over the world and um, just really getting their feedback and, of course, just doing our due diligence. And But it's, um, you know, it was, it, we spent a lot of time on that because we really wanted to find these incredible staff yeah. meals. And you knew when you found one, you knew you had heard from your friends that it was amazing, rumor has it. Um, but then when you talk to the chefs there, if they really invested in their staff meal, they were so excited about the concept. <laughs> and they yeah. really wanted to be in the book because it's often something that isn't discussed and the world doesn't know about. And they really wanted to show it off. And so that was really gratifying. Can we, can we talk about two New York ones from A to, well, WD. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Anissa and mm. WD50 are actually two places I've had staff meal. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> Anissa, uh, uh, I had actually a Seder <laughs> with, with Anita. <laughs> and then Wonderful. WD50, um, I drank the Kool-Aid. Um, what were those two choices? Um, I, I had friends who worked in both kitchens yeah. and had heard about how incredible they were. Christine actually... Um, she was, 
I don't, I don't know how long she was at Anissa, but I know she prepared a staff meal there. Cool. Um, she remembered how wonderful it was. And actually, um, somebody I staged with at the Fat Duck, Brent, Ben Freemol, he was a sous chef at WD-50. And um, he's like, you have to cover yeah. our staff meal. It's so incredible. And so... So, I mean, how did they differ from their foods? Because uh, I think we all know how Anita cooks at Anissa and how Wiley cooks at WD. Yeah. Um, what were staff meals like? I think we um, we had an Asian meal at Anissa. Um, so it was it was a nice um, a nice flow from her menu into the staff meal. WD-50, there was a stark contrast, which is something I also love seeing about staff meals. Um, they actually cooked a meal that they had prepared for Michel Bra when he visited, and it was a classic French bistro-style meal. And so, you know, very different from their menu. Yeah. Um, but that's, I love that about staff meal. That's the way it was at the Fat Duck as well. It was often just very classic British food. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, let's jump over to France to mm. Michel uh, yeah. at Sebastian Bra. Mm-hmm. What did you have at that? I mean, that's a legendary restaurant. Yeah. Everyone thinks it's just molten chocolate cake. But. <laughs> I did have that. Not for a staff meal, but he did make yeah, that for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, Was it but, the best ever since it is? Oh, I, <laughs> I want to remain neutral. Yeah. <laughs> um, we had roasted pork at Michel Bra, which, um, you know, he talked a lot about the tradition of pork in Languedoc and how that's often um, overlooked. And so he really wanted to showcase that. But again, that was a very... Um, traditional French meal. I think what was so special about um, that restaurant is he has been having staff meal with his family um, for years, and they all come. His grandkids were there. His mother, unfortunately, she's in her 90s. She wasn't there that day, but she actually used to prepare the staff meal. You know, and of course, his son is there. He's working at the restaurant, and um, his wife was there, and his daughter-in-law, and they ate at a separate table, um, just with the family, because he talked about those grueling hours in the kitchen, and this was his time to be with his family. So it was, he suited his grandkids up. They were on summer vacation. They were in chef coats and um, helping him prepare the staff meal. It was really amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing to hear this because I guess it blurs the line of staff meal versus family Absolutely. meal. Absolutely. Because yeah. you, you cook with your family. Yeah. You work with your family. Exactly. It's yeah. almost synonymous. Um, yeah. We're going to take a quick break and when we return, we'll find out who cooks some fried chicken at their <laughs> staff meal. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back.
Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Ranch grass-fed beef, pasture-raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. Man, I really love that Hearst jingle. <laughs> I, I just, I need, yeah, I need that as like my away message on my phone. <laughs> We're back, food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm here with Jody Eddy slash Miss Edibles. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, we were talking about staff meals. Fried chicken. Where did you have that? In kind of an unsuspecting place. Yeah, we had that at the Herb Farm in Woodenville, Washington, just outside of Seattle. That was actually the first staff meal I ever covered. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so it'll always um, be close to my heart. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was... That was a really great staff meal because um, they have an incredible garden there and they work with incredible growers and um, they often invite their growers, their fishermen, their farmers into the staff meal, which which I really loved seeing. Yeah, I guess it's not so often that the producers get to see the pro- final product. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that's a great bridge. Um, I want to go back to Minnesota. Hmm. Piccolo. Yes. What did you have there? Barbecue. <laughs> so there's a big barbecue scene in Minnesota. <laughs> Actually, um, the chef Doug Flicker, he had grown up in the South and, um, well, in Southern Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> in the South Minnesota. But yeah. he, um, you know, he was paying tribute to a barbecue joint and a, a chef there um, that he really loved. And you know, again, that's so often what you find with staff meals is they're going back into their past and and paying homage to people yeah. who have influenced them and. Yeah, so I, I didn't expect it, um, but it was really nice on a winter's day to have some barbecue in Minnesota. Well, let's talk about the New South, mm. uh, McCready, Sean yes. Brock. Yeah. Um, Sean had actually, when we got down there, he had just opened Husk four days before. <laughs> so Sean, as he often does, is just running on, on energy and inspiration that he was getting from everywhere. <laughs> but I don't think he had slept for four days. And um, But I had talked to him several members of his staff beforehand. Um, I've worked with him on different projects, and everyone talked about the staff meal there. And um, so he did uh, bacon-studded hamburgers, cheeseburgers. They wore in-and-out hats, and um, I guess that was, you know, again, and kind of unexpected. You were maybe expecting um, vegetables, or um, but incredible burgers and fries. Yeah, oh, that's all. So, and there are a ton of recipes in this book, let me add. Yes. Um, skirt steak stuffed with scallions, mm-hmm. duck and shrimp paella, beef-hardened watermelon salad, steamed chicken hearts with lily buds. Mm-hmm. Uh, Turkish red pepper suit with bulgar, um, tarragon and cherry soda, buttermilk donut holes with apple, honey, caramel glaze. I mean, this sounds like a menu. I mean, th- th- 
the fact that it's relegated to staff meals doesn't make it any less appetizing. No, absolutely not. I think um, because so often these chefs are cooking from their home recipes. And so they're often offering you their their favorite recipes from home, yeah. you know, which is a real honor. Yeah. And it, since it's made it through that far in life, it's got to be good. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so let's... Uh, Let's let's pique your interest of Iceland. Uh, you had an amazing staff <laughs> meal at Dill. Yes. Um, what was that experience like, and why are you now infatuated with going there? <laughs> um, I do love Iceland. My friends will tell you. Yeah. I won't <laughs> stop talking about it, so you got me started. Um, I went there just after the economic collapse for the first time, and I met this incredible chef, Gunnar Carl Gislason, and he runs Dill. He had just opened it up after the collapse, and all his investors pulled out overnight, and he ended up um, just having to work with his partner um, for months and months on his own. It was grueling, and his staff that did work for him um, he couldn't pay them at first. It was a harrowing story. So this staff meal, um, it was actually a day after Christmas, and it was a special, unique staff meal. It's not something you'd see every day in the restaurant, but it was just all of these incredible Christmas specialties, and it was a feast, and his, he asked his staff to invite their families. Um, so it was, it was really unique and special, and um, I'm now writing a book, with Gunnar. Awesome, yeah. And it actually, um, the book idea came out of that night. Um, Gunnar and I just have so much fun working together, and we had worked on a few other projects together, and um, we're like, let's, at the end of that night, um, like, let's write a book together. Yeah. And he um, is cooking the new Nordic style, but he is so devoted to his producers, his traditional food producers throughout Iceland, and will only use their products. And so that's the premise of the book. And um, that's what I, I respect so much about him, is this homage that he's always paying to them in his menu. Awesome. What are some products in Iceland that we wouldn't regularly see in New York? Um, <laughs> I just... I just um, got back from there. I was there two weeks ago, and um, we were out foraging with a birch collector. Um, uh, Gunnar does a, a really amazing birch-infused liqueur, and um, but he uses birch in everything. Um, you know, of course, there's the hay smoking. Yeah. Um, but there's we were um, with a bacalao producer who's really incredible. He's still doing it in the traditional way. Um, bacalao, the modern version, it's being injected with a saline solution. Just allow it to, to happen overnight, you know, and he devotes nine months, at least nine months, um, to create his bacalao. Um, wow. Just um, really incredible people. Um, there's hard fisker, which is a dried fish yep. um, that I'm actually, Gunnar and I are obsessed with it. We <laughs> drive around when we're driving through Iceland and um, eat our hard fisker, and it's actually served with butter. Because they can't grow a lot of grain in Iceland due to the volcanic soil. So they'll often serve hard fisker with butter at the table in the same way they'd serve bread and butter at the table. And um, so we met with some hard fisker producers, um, which for us was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think our photographer is Evan Sung. Awesome, um, yeah. And... He now is addicted to hard fisker yeah. as well, but I think initially he thought, "What are you? What's your obsession?" Yeah. <laughs> but, well, I mean, with that obsession going on to other books and other chefs, uh, you're working with, and I'm going to butcher her name, Mani Mani Chauhan. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I mean, it's New Delhi mm-hmm. cuisine. It's a. Um, I can't talk too much about it right now, yeah. but it's a. Um, 
a book profiling um, food throughout India. Actually. Awesome. Awesome. So, Collaboration be. with Chris Pandel. Uh, yes. We're back in Chicago now. Yeah. <laughs> Who is the chef at the Bristol? At the Bristol Ambolina that just opened up. Um, yeah, and actually, I covered the Bristol in staff meals. And that, again, was another um, fat duck stage that I had worked with, Joe Frillman, um, who was working at the Bristol. And he said, you have to cover our staff meal. It's so incredible. And, um, and Chris is just such an incredible Incredible chef, incredible person. Um, so yeah, we're having having a lot of fun. Awesome with that project and a, a project I'm very jealous of because I'm interested in this cuisine, Senegal, yes. and also talking about another tree like birch. Mm. Uh, the how do you say the it? Baobab. Baobab, yeah. which is a crazy, crazy looking tree. Really crazy. Yeah. And um, we we drank a lot baobab juice, <laughs> we, but the tree is sacred, so you can't cut down the tree. You can only use um, the pods, the seeds. Um, yeah, and they, there's even a um, a tribe in Senegal that buries their dead within the cavities of the baobab tree. Yeah. It's just, they're incredible. And, you know, of course, you're constantly thinking of the little prince as you're w- looking at these things in the landscape. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't, but now I am. I, I <laughs> yes. didn't realize, yeah, because of all the French influence and, well, and, Vietnamese and, influence. And actually, the author of The Little Prince, his route was um, to Dakar from oh. France. So oh, it, great. So being there, it was I didn't expect it either. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, how did you come to that project? You met a chef I did, at a conference. Yeah. yeah, I was at the World of Flavors conference, the Culinary Institute of America's conference um, last year. And he so inspired me. He's such a delightful person. And his cuisine, he was serving um, a dish at that conference that incorporated fonio, which is the most ancient grain of Africa. How do you spell that? F-O-N-I-O. And it's incredible, um, the history of it and just um, what it represents to the people of Senegal. It, it was a crop that was displaced um, during colonization. And now they're, they're reclaiming it and they're finding this renewed pride in it. And um, Pierre told me the story of Fonio at that conference. And uh, I interviewed him later on just for my own blog. And I, I got off the phone. I was in Asheville, and I got off the phone. I was with Evan, actually, in a photo shoot. I said, I have to write a cookbook with this chef. Yeah. <laughs> He's so inspiring to me. Yeah. So, well, so it just there we were in Senegal. Teaches people to get out there, too. I mean, that you can meet someone and on that happenstance, collaborate with them yeah. if you're interested. Um, it's like staging at a restaurant. If you want to do it, just ask and exactly. get in there. Work for free. Do whatever you need to do. Yes. And good things come of it um you're also trying to put together designing launching some food-centric tours Hmm. where in the world are you going iceland (laughs) i couldn't have guessed that i know it's amazing i don't know how that happened it doesn't um but yeah we're we're looking at um we were trying to do it this august um but just with the cookbook project I have going on there, it's just too much to do um, to incorporate a photo shoot there as well. So we're shooting for next year, but it's incorporating a lot of the producers that I have um, visited throughout Iceland. And so I'm really hoping that it's something intimate and special for people and an experience that they couldn't um, couldn't get anywhere else. Yeah, so I mean, obviously taking them to the kitchens too, I assume, yes, but absolutely. taking them behind behind the scenes... Yes of where all these things come from. Minnesota. I want to get back to the States. (laughs) You know, it's such a great and vibrant, you know, food scene there. Um, And you were just recently back. Yeah. Where are you eating in Minnesota? Uh, Well, my, my, 
I shouldn't say my favorite place, but a place I frequent oftenly is um, the Red Stag. Um, it's and then I was just at the Bachelor Farmer the last time I was there, and that was that was really fun to see kind of this um, this new Nordic um, influence kind of creep into my my stomping grounds. Yeah, <laughs> I really liked that, especially with all the investment I made into Iceland. Um, that was. It was nice to see. So what bridged the gap uh, from Minnesota to Senegal to Iceland? What, what are the common you know, <laughs> denominators of staff meal, of, of food in general? You must see these you know, uh, things that are you know, analogous throughout the world. Well, I think you know, my, um, the project we're doing in Senegal, what I'm doing in Iceland. Um, also, I think with staff meals, Minnesota, you know, there's integrity in, in the... Um, producers that I'm meeting in their work, um, there's there's a purity there and an honesty. And um, the projects in Senegal and Iceland, you know, we're profiling these traditional food producers, and I think that really just speaks to what I grew up with. Um, there's simplicity there, but there's also there's a history behind it, and it's perhaps what ties it all together. Yeah. <laughs> So you spin the globe, where are you going next? I mean, is there another region in the world that you think has all those qualities? Hmm. I'm really focused on, yeah. um, <laughs> right now on um, Iceland, India, Senegal. <laughs> it seems like a pretty diverse bunch, racking up the miles so you can go <laughs> yes. further someday. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for being on. Um, come in, we're closed. Uh, what, what, what is the second title of it? <laughs> um. An invitation to the world's best staff meals is actually out now. Yes, yeah. it is. It so, is. They released it two weeks early. Yeah, yeah. they got so excited they can't <laughs> keep it in the warehouse anymore. Get this book. Uh, you get to travel, you know, with Jody, uh, you know, throughout the world. Hear these great stories. Try these fantastic recipes, and hopefully, get wanderlust yourself. Excellent. Thank you again for being on. Looking forward to. Uh, where the world takes you next. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Cheers. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. To have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Network.org. I left my shoes on, didn't you bet?